0: I have this sort of picture in my mind that every time we write a word or a scene or a you know a conversation between characters, that at every point we have thousands of possibilities of where uh-huh. that scene or that story or those characters could go. and every time we choose one, while we we're pruning off all of those other thousands, we're also creating another whole set of thousands.
1: yeah, so, that's um, true. Welcome to Rights for Women, a podcast all about celebrating women's voices and supporting women writers. I'm Pamela Cook, women's fiction author, writing teacher, mentor, and podcaster. Before beginning today's chat, I would like to acknowledge and pay my respects to the Darrawal people, the traditional custodians of the land on which this podcast is being recorded, along with the traditional owners of the land throughout Australia. And pay my respects to their elders, past, present, and emerging. And a quick reminder that there could be strong language and adult concepts discussed in this podcast, so please be aware of this if you have children around. Now, let's relax on the convo couch and chat to this week's guest. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the very first episode of Rights for Women for 2022. I'm excited to have so many wonderful guests lined up for the first quarter of the year and beyond on the podcast and if you'd like to hear more about who some of those people are you can tune into the mini-sode that I released last week which gives you a little sneak peek into who is coming up. Today's episode is primarily a craft of writing episode and my guest is Lynn Yowett. It was such a great chat and Lynn and I could have talked all day. I felt like I'd met her a zillion times and we were best friends, we could have talked so for so long about her writing and her debut novel, The Silent Listener. There's also quite a bit of heart of writing in this episode as Lynn chats about imposter syndrome and mustering the courage to put her work out into the world, something most writers like myself can totally relate to. I hope you enjoy this chat with Lynn. Oh, and a little warning, there is a mild spoiler about the type of ending the book has. There's no specific details about the ending, just around the type of ending. So if you haven't read it yet and you think that may bother you, you might want to save this episode until you have finished this fabulous book. So grab a cuppa, sit back and enjoy my chat with Lynn Youwitt. Well, let's start officially. Lynn Youwitt, welcome to Rights for Women. Thank you so much, Pam. I'm so delighted to be here. Uh, well, we've been—I've been trying to tee this up for quite a while, and we ran out of time at the end of last year. So it's fantastic to have you here as the first podcast, you know, episode for 2022. And I've just finished very recently the Silent Listener. I held off reading; I wanted to read it, you know, very close to our chat, so it was all fresh in my mind. I don't know how it would ever not be fresh because it is such a compelling harrowing in very many ways but just gripping book so congratulations like debut book as well just absolutely fantastic
0: oh that's so nice I was just saying also to you I I still have not stopped you know pinching myself and saying oh my god is this for real every time someone says something complimentary. So I hope I get you well, maybe I hope I don't get used to it. I think it's just it's just so lovely to hear compliments all the time. And yeah, I I hope I never get used to it.
1: No, no, may you never get used to it. So before we get going on there's so many things I want to talk to you about regarding uh, the book, in particular some of the craft aspects of the book, which I really, really enjoyed and really struck me. But before we do that, perhaps if you can tell listeners uh what the book is about.
0: The Silent Listener is a psychological thriller about a story, uh, sorry, about a family that's kind of drowning in lies and fear and deception and secrets and it focuses on a young girl called Joy who has this strange form of synesthesia and loves words and it's the story of how she comes to terms with or maybe doesn't come to terms with the trauma that she lives through as a child and the ramifications of that. And wrapped up in all of that is a girl who's gone missing, her father who's found dead when he's close to dying anyway and it looks like it's murder and an accident that happened a long time ago that nobody ever talks about. That's
1: my Very well summed up because there is so much going on and I loved in particular the way you drew all those threads together so cleverly. I can't wait to find out a little bit more about how you did that. (laughs) Um, But before we get on to that in in detail, could you tell us also about your history in terms of your writing? Because this is a debut novel, you know, we were just talking about that we grew up, both of us, in the 70s. We were teenagers around that time. So it's taken you a while to get to the point to get your first book out. But what's been your history up until till now with writing and publishing?
0: I may have made a very successful living out of writing and editing pretty much anything that you can think of. So it's for the very smallest things I guess I've ever written are uh, titles for pieces of art and captions for art oh, wow! through to textbooks, PhD theses, novels, poetry, corporate stuff like websites, policies and procedures, media kits, speeches for executives, award applications, you name it. I have written it and or edited it and it provided me with a really good income I'm not rich but it's been a very steady and you know satisfying income and and I really really enjoy it but all along I've all I've ever wanted to be all my life is a novelist so it's taken me a long time to do it and I look back and I think I should have done it then I should have done it then I should have done it then but you know, we are just the people we are at every stage of our lives. And sort of echoing what Nikki said in the last episode was that the last episode of last, last year? Last year,
1: yeah, it was. Yeah. Nikki Gemmel, yeah, for sure. Yeah.
0: That idea that, you know, Sylvia Plath talks about self doubt being so crippling in terms of creativity. And that was me, that is me personified. And that is partly because of, without a doubt, the childhood I had where I just wasn't encouraged to do anything. I was never seen as good enough at anything that I did, even though I was, you know, I did pretty well at school academically and and I I did pretty well at sport as well and things like that. But my dad just had this thing that pride comes before a fall and that, you know, women, children and especially females were to be seen and not heard your opinion didn't count if you disagreed with somebody. Well, we didn't. There was no disagreement in our household. Mm. We were not allowed to disagree with our father. And, and this is interesting because I don't think I've talked about this in any other interviews. My mum and dad, when they, when they had their 25th wedding anniversary, I was the only one of their children who was there because my, other, my siblings didn't want to be around my parents. And in dad's speech, he said that he and Mum had never had a fight in their 25 years of marriage. And I stood there thinking, that's because no one is allowed to say anything that you don't agree with. Mm. And Mm. so, you know, so that was sort of, you know, that's how I explain to myself and therefore I guess others why it's taken me so long to write a debut novel even though I've spent all these years writing and I'd like to think sort of honing the craft a little bit.
1: Yeah it's really interesting isn't it the whole psychology around the whole self-doubt thing because as you say you have had a very successful career as a writer across a whole range of different you know genres and styles and everything yet when it came to that much more personal creative process that's when the self-doubt really kicked in
0: absolutely and it's interesting isn't it because I know that I can craft a sentence and it, and it's going to be grammatically correct and hopefully not have too many typos which I think is a different whole different ball game but yeah the thought of penning something and putting it out there so I I was always on and off kind of dabbling in creative writing so I always put things on the computer or you know in the proverbial bottom bottom drawer I never thought any of it was any good so I never did anything with it even once I wrote a children's book and everyone in my kids school read it and loved it and the kids illustrated it and it was I know I think looking back I think it was pretty good anyway in a burst of very rare self confidence, I actually rang an agent that was in the days when you used to be able to look them up in the white pages. Right. Of <laughs> I rang this agent and I explained to her what I had done and that the book had, you know, every kid in the book had in the school had read it and really loved it. And she said, "Yeah, send it to us. We'd love to. We'd love to read it." And you know, I never ever did.
1: Oh, really? So you could get that far but not take the next step?
0: No, I just drowned in self-doubt and I I just never did it. It's incredible, isn't it? Mm. And, you know, at that point I was actually running like a business in, in that sort of corporate communications. I think we had about, at that point, about 12 people working for us and, you know, it wasn't like I was some totally shy withdrawn little Mm. hermit but I still just couldn't take that last step and actually put it in an envelope which would have had to have done in those days and send it to her
1: well it's never too late Lynn as you know you can always dig out that children's book yes March. <laughs>
0: <laughs> anyone who's, me, who's really interested particularly I guess my own publisher's penguin it's called Alexander <laughs> the Pirate <laughs> and it's Brilliant. full of amazing adventures of course <laughs>
1: so with all that going on Lynn when did you get to the point where you like you said you dabbled in novel writing did you have bits of the silent listener that you'd written over the years or was it more a decision right I'm going to write this book and then you started and when was that
0: I was writing little short pieces not even short stories although now we might call them flash fiction or you know Mm. fiction just sort of little scenes and a lot of it was around processing you know my the legacy of having lived with my dad and having had that childhood. And I had a contract at that time as a technical writer. I've done a lot of technical writing too. And the person who happened to be sitting next to me in this particular contract, also as a technical writer, is a poet. And so we started talking about our creative writing, and he said, Oh, let's share, let's show each other some work. And I thought, <laughs> because he he had been published and won some awards and stuff like that. Anyway, I started showing him these pieces and he was really complimentary and he said, you should put all of them together and write a novel. And I thought, oh, wow, could I, could I, could I? And so I just kept writing and that was about 20 years ago and so I just kept writing and writing and writing and then maybe about 11 or 12 years ago I went and did a, postgraduate diploma in creative writing at Melbourne Uni and then I did a master's followed that up with a master's in creative writing at Melbourne also and at that point sometime in in all of that I decided yeah I'm going to write a novel and I'm going to start telling people I'm writing a novel so I'm mm, committed to owning it, it. yeah you, you know that can be a good thing to do or a not so good thing to do but anyway, I did it, and I had some great feedback from some of the lecturers at Melbourne, you know, including people like Arnold Zabel and Tony oh. Birch, and that was very, you know, much-needed affirmation for me that someone, you know, of that calibre could say, this is really good writing. So I just kept going and going and going and, and then trying to kind of form it, put, all, put all of those scenes and then into, a, a, you know, the form of a novel, which is very different. And then I went to some novel writing masterclasses run by Anthony Yark in Melbourne, and that was also very affirming. Met some other great writers from at every stage of the writing process from emerging like I was with nothing published through to quite well-known authors. So that was nice to be sort of in that milieu and, Mm. and feeling that, oh, if they could do it, maybe I can do it too. And and just sort of picking up on a little bit more about what it took, which is, you know, a lot of perseverance and a lot of resilience and a lot of determination and giving up other things that you might want to do instead, or just sort of having that focus and saying, This is what I'm doing, this is what I'm doing. And that particular fairly large cohort of writers in the masterclass, they were all again all very complementary of what I had been writing and I got to a point where I thought I can't actually back out now because I'd be letting all of those people <laughs> <go. laughs> so sort of they' come chasing me. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah I didn't think they'd let me give up so I just kept going and going and going and going as they say yeah and yeah and then then at one point I got in touch with you subsequently became my agent and is my agent. and that you know that was a really nice process as well. Um, yeah. And yeah, I think at every point along the way you kind of think, yeah, maybe I can just take the next step. I'll just do the next step. I'll just do the next thing. And 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 just projecting yourself into a future where maybe you actually have that novel and you're holding it in your hand. Mm. That's sort of something that I tried to keep in mind. And doing things like formatting it on the page, the way that it would look if it was printed and just sort of things like that that help you keep making it a reality.
1: Yeah, yeah, that's true, isn't it? Taking all those steps towards actually being a novelist. Yes. So once you were well into the writing of this book, did you like intentionally think I'm writing a crime thriller? Like was that was <laughs> yeah. that your intention all along?
0: Or? No, 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 it wasn't. And I always just thought I was going to write some amazing, you know, great Australian novel that was very literary and I don't know highbrow or something I don't know this is definitely also part of the legacy of having grown up with my father that you had to if you were going to do something you had to be the best right and that if you weren't the best then it wasn't good enough so that also is a bit of a stumbling block because I you know I'm not going to write the best novel ever written in Australia so therefore kind of channeling my father I'd be thinking well why, why do it then if it's not yeah. the best so that that was also a big stumbling block so I did start off writing trying to write yeah the great Australian novel and then in this masterclass that I was in I'd become friends with J.P. Pamare and, and we're still friends I think <laughs> there we are and I looked at what he had done so he when we met he was in the final throes of kind of writing Call Me Evie and I'd read some of those chapters and before the book came out. And and one day I just sort of thought, oh, well, I guess, you know, I like what he's done and I helped him with an article that he was writing for a journal or something and there was a line in that that really stood out for me. He, he wrote that his passion was literary fiction but his day job was to write commercial fiction. Right. And I thought, gee, that's really that's really smart. He knows what he's doing. It's not as if he's giving up the his love of greatness. Mm. Anyway, so I kind of had this idea that maybe I could do that. And then one day, while I was writing, literally Shepherd, Alex Shepherd, that oh, yeah, popped yep. in because I had this dead body that was obviously there were suspicious circumstances about the death. And I thought, well, I have to have a cop. Anyway, so Alex arrived on the scene. The <laughs> uh, lady became known as just Shep from his last yeah. name. And I thought, yeah, I'm going to go with this. I'm going to see where it takes me. It's not what I plan to do, but I'm going to see where it takes me. And, and I just sort of had Josh's success. And, and, of course, you can't help but think about people like Jane Harper and mm. so many other great mm. Australian crime writers And I thought, I don't want to do a procedural as such, but I'm prepared to, yeah, have a few suspicious deaths and disappearances (laughs) and so on and and kind of have that hopefully, yeah, compelling page turning element. Yeah.
1: And I guess once you go down that path too, like you say, with the detective and then the, the dead bodies and the investigation, you're sort of pushing more into that genre, aren't you? Because there's so many different ways it could go, really.
0: Oh, absolutely. And I, I think I have this sort of picture in my mind that every time we write a word or a scene or, a, you know, a conversation between characters, that at every point we have thousands of possibilities of where mm. that scene or that story or those characters could go. And every time we choose one, while we're pruning off all of those other thousands, we're also creating another whole set of thousands. Yeah, that's true. I kind of think we've got this endless thing of kind of forked roads and lots of directions every time. So I also think that means that when we're writing, you make a decision, yeah, I'm going to go down this path, that when you start going down that path, if it's not working, you can come back and go down one of the other thousands of others. And, And I think that's, again both liberating there's a good and a bad side of that it's really liberating to think that you have endless possibilities but then it can be daunting to have endless possibilities because you don't know maybe which one is going to work best for this Mm. book these characters this scene whatever it might be.
1: That's so true, you know, those two ways of looking at it. It just brings to mind when I was interviewing Holly Ringland earlier, I keep saying this year, but it was last year, year. and she was talking about this whole idea of fear around writing, you know, and she said that she, because she feels it, as we all do, very intensely, and she'd started playing around with the idea that, you know, what if it's not fear? What if it's just actual curiosity and and if you turn it around and look at the flip side and think, okay, what can I be curious about rather than what can I be afraid about? And it's that idea, isn't it, of which way you choose to go with all those possibilities.
0: I love that. That's fantastic. Curiosity instead of fear. I think a lot of writers need to overcome the yes. whole range <laughs> of, sets of fears and thinking about it in that positive, yeah, just putting that twist to give the positive spin is terrific and i I love love the way way that you you described it
1: too as all those little bits of a web almost reaching out in different directions it's great
0: Mm. that's fantastic i
1: love that (laughs) let's talk a little bit about joy as your main character in the silent listener you have alluded already a couple of times in this interview and I know in previous interviews I've read and listened to you with you you've talked about the book having an autobiographical element how much of you and your experience would you say is in joy and what happens to her in the book
0: mm, do I have to put a percentage on it that's a tough one <laughs> Anne. Yeah. I'm I'm going to sit on the fence and say about 50 percent
1: right yeah yeah Still quite high isn't it for oh, a very fictional, high. Yeah, fictional yeah, character yeah, very mm. high yeah, mm. yeah. So I
0: think that well certainly elements of joy like her love of words and dictionaries and things like that, that is absolutely me. I'm a word nerd. And and the family that depict in the novel is pretty much the family that I lived with. There were some structural changes. So I never had a sister. I had two brothers, I have two brothers, and 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 we did, there was a lot, the physical description of the farm is pretty much 100% accurate with the dam, with the water lilies and the eels and the snake, wow. rubbish tank and the wall hanging. Oh, really? <laughs> oh, absolutely, that wall hanging was over the kitchen table and, yeah, the, I think the original big brother. That you know just that idea that someone is watching and listening to everything you do is really very daunting for children Mm. that that doesn't matter whether you're in your room by yourself or you're over at the dam where there's nobody else or whatever and wherever you are someone is watching and listening and making judgments about you so that yeah so all of that is true and I, I did sort of have that kind of slightly, I'm going to say kind of warped view of how everything in the Bible sat in the real world, that concept of heaven and hell and the devil. And the devil was far more stronger image in my head in terms of what he was like visually and what he did than stronger than God ever was. Right. So, you know, so all those... Because,
1: because that's what you were told. Yes, Absolutely. And I father. think also
0: the way that from memory, and I might be wrong, but the way that, for example, the Bible depicts hell is far more graphic and and I was going to say accurate, detailed, far more detailed than the way that heaven is depicted. Like nobody ever actually describes what heaven mm, is like, but we do have true. these images of you know fire and brimstone and eternal damnation and horror and heat and all of that sort of thing. So I had those very strong visual images in my head of hell, but not of heaven or God. So, so yeah, I think 50%, but hopefully I'm not quite as damaged as joy Mm. came And, and I didn't seek any revenge.
1: Yeah, yeah. You have to read the book, everyone, to find out about that. Um, yeah, but a, a there. <laughs> so when you're writing, you know, obviously our characters do tend to develop as we write and even if we've got autobiographical elements in there, they take on this whole persona and become become this person within their own right. As you were writing the story, how did Joy develop for you and, like, were there surprises along the way that, oh, wow, this is who she is? How How did that happen for you? I think Joy
0: did stay pretty constant. I had always been writing scenes with the young Joy and then the adult Joy. I always had Joy coming back as an adult and to wreak revenge in some way, shape or form. That changed considerably during the writing, but that idea was always there. So Joy didn't change very much, but some of the other characters did, I guess, and I suppose I'm thinking perhaps about Shepard, who never, ever existed, or not for a long time, and for a long time neither did Wendy Boscombe, the girl okay. who goes missing. So she also popped into existence when Joy was cleaning out the shed after her father died, and she's sort of thinking about selling everything. And she looked at the chest that were, that had allegedly these expensive tools in it, and she thought, "And do you know you're just writing like your fingers are just moving, and yeah. the words are coming out on screen." And it seems such a sort of cliche falsehood that things just happen without you thinking about them but honestly I wrote this thing that the father had said that the tools in the chest would cost an arm and a leg and then Joy thought about an arm and a leg and thought oh that chest is big enough to hold more than just an arm and a leg it could hold a whole body Mm. and maybe that's where Wendy Boscombe is and then I th- I'm thinking, who the hell is Wendy Bosk? <laughs> <laughs> so then I, to, I did this whole thing about, okay, so let's just introduce this idea of this girl who's gone missing called Wendy Boscombe. And then I thought, oh, I have, to th- I have to go right back to the beginning and kind of thread that through. It can't just happen halfway through when she's clearing out the shed. And then the whole thing about Wendy Boscombe just grew and grew, mm. and grew until it became quite pivotal.
1: Yeah, yeah, big part of the plot. So I want to get back on to Joy, something about yeah, Joy in a minute, but no, no, but that brings me to this point of all these different threads that you had, which I imagine, you know, not ever having really written a crime novel, but when something like that comes up for you, do you stop at that point and go back and start threading that in and then get back to that point and move forward again? How did you handle that? in your drafting and revision process?
0: Yeah, good, really good question. I did a bit of both. So sometimes just think, oh, right, okay, I've got this character, Wendy Boscombe, who, who's who gone missing. And sometimes I would just write a note. So I had this school's cap notebook beside me. And if I thought, right, I need to do something in another time thread or even in the same time thread but back in scenes that I've already written, whether they occur chronologically before or after, mm. I'd just make a note. Must weave in Wendy Boscombe <laughs> yeah, or whatever yeah. it might be, so that I w- wouldn't lose that idea in my head. And then maybe I would finish that writing that scene, and then think, okay, now I'm going to go back and pick up and work on that note. And then sometimes, of course, when I was working on that note, something else would happen, and I think, oh, all right, now I have to now I have to do that, and I'd write that down. So. <laughs> At one point I reckon I had about four or five pages of these one or two line notes about things that I had to do and then I thought I needed to get a little bit more organised with them so I typed them, put them all into Word and I put them into the relevant time thread.
1: Ah, good idea.
0: So, you know, I, I kind of got to a point where I guess I had a complete manuscript and I thought, right, now I'm just going to do each of these one by one. And as I did each one, I highlighted it in green to <laughs> remind myself that I had done it. I kind of didn't want to delete it just in case, I don't know why, just in case looking at it might have triggered something else. So I just highlighted yeah. in green. And I didn't necessarily complete each of them in the order that they were in on that, that note like because it just didn't, I didn't yeah. have to do it that way. So I did a little bit of both. But sometimes I would think, right, I'm just going to go back and make that one change that I have to make back in Chapter 2 to make what I'm
1: writing in Chapter 20. Mm, Because it's sort of the domino effect, isn't it? It can change everything about that thread and other threads as well. Yeah,
0: yeah. And after I'd signed the contract with Penguin, Bev, Cousins, my publisher there, made a a pretty significant suggestion (laughs) to the plot. And I was a little bit resistant at first and because I thought it actually would change a little bit about who Joy was. And I said, let me go away and think about it. And she said, I don't think you'll have to make many changes to the actual manuscript, just maybe in the last quarter or so. Anyway, I went away and I said to her, rang her up a couple of days later, and I said, okay, I don't think I'll do exactly what you suggested, but what if I do this instead? And she said, oh, that's even better. Yeah, 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 run with that, run with that. And she said, I still don't think it will take you very long to do. And I kept track of how long it took me to do because that's what I do for my clients. I write down how long to do things. So I I had started keeping track of how many hours I was working on it. And when I made that decision to when I sort of finished making all the changes that came out of that one change, I had done something like 400 hours of Oh, work.
1: my goodness. With, with I that, thought you were going to say maybe uh, uh, 40, maybe? Uh,
0: 400 hours. Because, and it's not to say that was the only thing I did. I kept yeah. making other, you know, I was kept, kept doing other things, but I had this one big thing about Joy that I had to change. And so it changed nearly every piece of dialogue that she right. had. So it's really the, the the big reveal at the end of the book. Okay. Going I'm going to
1: um, keep you online when we say goodbye because I want to know what that is.
0: <laughs> yeah, okay. And, uh, yeah, I've talked about this before with other people too, that one of my all-time favourite books is Rebecca by Daphne DiMaria. Oh,
1: mine too. Absolutely I, love ab- it.
0: Yeah, and what I love about it, I and mean, there's lots of things I love, but one of the things I really love about it is how the character's words in, in dialogue and so on, they, they have t- more than one meaning. So mm-hmm. when you don't know the twist, you just read it thinking, you know, A is the case. But when you find out what the truth is and you go back and read it, you think, Ah, oh, yeah, okay, mm-hmm. we just thought that's what they were referring to. But there's a different meaning and, it, and it's not that the character has lied or deliberately tried to mislead, you know, in this case most of them, the new Mrs. De Winter, it's the um, it's the way that Daphne Du Maurier crafted it, all of those sentences, and I thought that's what I need to do. Every sentence, not every sentence, but a whole lot of things that Joy says, and conversations Joy and Ruth have, and conversations adult Joy and George have, and so on, all have to have, or a lot of them have to have that those double layers yeah. of meaning, and and I became perhaps a bit obsessed with making sure that they all worked and that, you know, I don't know, they were Mm. clever or I'm going to say very carefully constructed. Yeah. Thinking about things like the use of pronouns perhaps or people's names or, you know, yeah. So I really tried to be, yeah, very careful about all that and it took Mm. a long time, yeah.
1: (laughs) Oh, that's amazing. It's great for people to hear that, I think, and to know how long this sort of stuff can take. And that was... After you'd signed the contract, so this was in the revision process with penguin. Yes, yes.
0: And to Penguin's credit, you know when we signed um, the contract, actually before we signed the contract and I was talking one night on the phone to Bev for first time we'd ever spoken. and she was already planning the publication schedule and was, which was really amazing, like we didn't have a contract or anything at that point, but I was getting pretty excited. So that was in about May of 2019. And the book came out in February 2021. So that was about 18 months between signing and publication. Right. And she said, one of the things we want to do is make sure that we've got plenty of time to make it the best book that we
1: can make it. brilliant.
0: And yeah, and and that really was both a privilege and a luxury. And then of course, in 2020, Twenty. I just stop and think about years now, don't I we? I know. I know. <laughs> Twenty. That was when the virus hit and the pandemic. Mm. Everyone was, you know, well, you know, the whole world went crazy. But I had, and while I lost a lot of my day job work, it meant that I had this incredible amount of time to do all of mm. these So you know, both good and bad again.
1: Yeah. Yeah. You mentioned that Joy has this really interesting form of synesthesia, which is something that's always fascinated me. I've spoken to a number of authors now that have written characters with various forms of synesthesia, which is about a, it's a sensory thing, isn't it, about how they see and interpret the world in different visual, you know, or, or sensory ways. Yeah,
0: multiple um, sensory ways when yeah. most of us only get one we smell something and that's it, but other people smell things and also have a sensation or we see a word and that's the end of it, but other people see colours or images mm. or word. It's really amazing.
1: Do you have that?
0: Mm, I wish I could say yes, but I yeah. don't. But my daughter does. Okay. So okay. she has what uh, I say is the common garden variety where um, every letter and number for her has a unique
1: colour. Colour. Yeah, yeah, that's that's the one I've read the most about. But I just wanted to read a little bit so people can hear how this operates for joy and just so you could maybe talk about it a bit. And it's a scene where she's talking to Mrs Felicity, who is the mother of her friend Felicity and the whole family become the Felicities for joy. And she says, when I see the word elephant, I see a thick brown battered book with curled up pages Mrs Felicity looked up from the pot she was scrubbing and Joy could tell she was intrigued, so she continued. But sometimes it's not a picture. Sometimes it can be a feeling. Like when I read Butterfly, I have that feeling you get when you think that one day you're actually going to die. Mrs Felicity raised her eyebrows at that one. Is there something wrong with me? Well, Joy, I don't see any pictures when I see words, although I might think about what an elephant or whatever it is looks like. And I don't get feelings either, not when I see the word for something beautiful like a butterfly. I think you just have a very special understanding of words. What do you mean? Uh, And then she goes, Mrs Felicity goes on to explain. And then Joyce says, uh, Mrs Felicity asks, are there any other words that you have images for? And Joyce says, there are hundreds. One of my favourites is blurb. It's a swing (laughs) in a playground at least 50 feet high because it ends where it starts but takes you somewhere you've never been before. And then she goes on to talk about nectar is an archway made of silk and sublime is a soft round lump of Christmas cake icing tucked into your cheek and melting. Just such beautiful descriptions, Lynn. and I just wanted to ask you about that must have been such a a joy, pardon the pun, (laughs) to write those sections about the way Joy's mind operates.
0: I absolutely loved it and, look, I don't have that synesthesia but I have to tell you that every single image came to me really easily. I just relished thinking about them and, I don't know, I just, they were just perhaps the best part of writing the book. Yeah, yeah. They they just would. it was like they were sitting there waiting for me to write. Not once did I think, oh, I don't know what this word would be. It was just sitting there waiting Mm. for And I also liked it because it relieved, I thought of this a long time ago, I mean, when I was doing my master's, I think at Monash and writing the novel as part of my thesis. And I remember thinking that it relieved a lot of the bleakness that was there. At that point, it was fairly bleak. (laughs) It was pretty dark. Well, it is still dark. It was really dark. I was going to say. <laughs> <laughs> it had no relief back then. And then I, then I had this idea of Joy, who loves dictionaries and words, creating her own dictionary and having these images coming into her mind. And I just thought, oh, this is wonderful. I love this. And for a long time, in fact, you know, I've had lots of working titles for it. One of, them, one of the titles was My Beautiful Dictionary.
1: Right. Yeah, I could see that. But that actually leads into my next question, which was about the whole tone of the book. As you say, I mean, it's dealing with, you know, childhood abuse, massive trauma. The, The setting is largely quite bleak. You know, it is crime, it's thriller, it's got all that darkness in there. But you do have these moments of light Moments where we see joy, actually being happy, usually away or always away from her family, and often with the felicities. But yeah. that my question was going to be, which I think you've partly answered, is: Did you deliberately look for ways to balance that that darkness, you know, with other sort of bits of hope and light? I guess.
0: Yeah, I, I really did because I did know that it was very bleak, and you know, we look at books like you know, A Little Life. But yeah, look, I just don't think we can put out books that are totally bleak. And I still have some interesting issues and conversations with people about the ending of the book. And I did have to decide. I don't. I don't know if this is a spoiler or not, but I did have to decide whether I was going to give it a happy or a sad ending. Mm or maybe an optimistic ending or a poignant ending. You know, again, we have lots of possibilities that we yeah. can choose. And I had, a, I was having a conversation with my daughter about it who'd read an, a fairly fairly complete, sort of close to, as it is, sort of manuscript. I think after I'd signed the contract, I can't remember now, and she's an adult, so it's not like I was asking a 10-year-old what she mm, thought.
1: Yeah, yeah.
0: <laughs> and we talked about the ending and various kinds and... We both, I remember we were in a cafe and we looked across the table at each other and we said, hmm, it has to be like this, doesn't it? Right, yeah. Or I said that and she said, yeah, I think it does. And that's how I went down. Yeah, maybe, well, I'll just say in my next novel, that's not going to be the case. The next novel is going to be end on an up note.
1: (laughs) Right, okay.
0: (laughs) I may have given too much away.
1: That's all right I'll put a little spoiler alert at the beginning of the chat. we haven't given a lot away but you know a bit about the vibe I suppose. yeah the other thing I wanted to ask you about regarding that whole darkness Lynn is that you you know obviously it is fairly autobiographical you were writing about a character experienced childhood trauma that some of which you had been through yourself yes how did you cope with that during the writing process look, well,
0: Interestingly, it wasn't too difficult. A, because, again, it was all sitting there. I didn't have to make up that material. The thing that I did have to do was actually wind it back a bit sometimes because in some of the writing workshops I was in, I would present something that I had written which was based on fact and people said to me, this would never happen. You've got to take that uh, out. It never happened. And, and I thought, well, that's sort of really bizarre. But I did. I did take stuff out. I will say also, though, that there are some, some of the worst elements perhaps in the book or some scenes, certain parts of it were not in my real life were not as bad. Right. As yeah played in the novel. So there's both a winding back and an and an upping of the ante, which mm. is sort of weird in itself too, but yeah, both both existed. But I think it was relatively easy because as I said, it was all sitting there waiting for me. The material was there, the scenes were there, the events and the acts on the part of my father were there. And in a sense, I think I felt, you know, it's a bit of a cliche, but to say that it was was a cathartic exercise yeah. true. And So I felt like, you know, I guess there was some sort of expunging, purging of those things that had sat inside me because I had never, ever told anybody about them and that's really interesting too. I had lived with shame about that. I had never wanted to tell anybody what it was like growing up in that house and I used to look at other people who had, you know, lovely homes and families who were obviously loved and given confidence and so on. And A, I couldn't understand it. And also B, I just couldn't then say to those people, ah, my life was like this. I I really Mm. felt ashamed of it. And I think that says a lot also about, you know, in courts and in media and so on, people look at people who've been sexually abused or been victims of other horrendous events and say, well, why didn't you say anything? Why didn't you speak up? Why has it taken me mm-hmm. 20 years? If it's if it's true, why didn't you say anything? And I think that there's one, that thing of people might not believe me and that is true in the silent listener and true in um, my life as well, but also you're drowning in shame. It, yeah, yeah. It, how do you find the words to express what is happening to you when you're a child and you know you won't be believed or you won't, no one will pay any attention to you or you just, the power dynamics are not in your favour, you know, and, of course, we have to think about people like Grace Tame and Brittany Higgins, mm. all of those people and victims of sexual abuse at the hands of, you know, people in churches and other institutions and so on. And And I know that this is true because I've had people, friends and strangers come up to me at writers festivals and when we're having coffee like with friends and they've told me that they had similar childhoods and one woman said to me i was reading your book and i just kept thinking how does she know that this happened to me you uh, know this happened to oh me?
1: i just got goosebumps when you said that
0: i know and and all of them have said the shame of having that when you know, media and every you know storybooks. Everything talks about happy families. Yeah, it's it's really difficult to say. Oh, I, I didn't have that. This was what my family was like.
1: Yeah, very- writing it must have been actually liberating in a way. It
0: was. It and was. It, it out, out, you
1: know? Yeah, it's
0: out there and mm. and. Yeah, and also look, my dad died um, twenty years ago, and you know I've changed too. Even at, because even as an adult, I felt sort of you know under his influence yeah. sort of while he was alive, and hard to kind of break free of all of that. And so it's only it was really only after he died that I felt that I could become the person who I think maybe I should have been all along. The weird thing, thinking and talking yeah. about.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, I just want to go into just another craft issue because I know you've got some exciting news around <laughs> the book as yeah. well. The other thing that really struck me about the writing of the book Lynn was the the way that you used different voices, points of view. So we have as you mentioned earlier there's the younger Joy who's written in Joy's written in first person yes. from memory, I should know yeah. that. I've just finished it. We have George and Joy's mother in past tense because obviously that, that it's sort of flashbacks almost to their their early years and, and their yep. marriage as Joy was growing up. I, I felt more of a distance, I think a deliberate distance from those characters. And then there's Alex Shepard, of course, who is the detective and we get him in third person. Yes. I think. Correct. Right. Yes. So- <laughs> I I loved all those changes because I think it gave each of the characters and each of those plot lines a real individuality. But how did you go about working out those or how did you make those choices, those narrative choices?
0: I think by luck more than anything else. um, I had always been writing Young Joy in first person because of that sort of autobiographical thing. And then one day, and I honestly can't remember when, I, I thought I think I need to change to third person to give myself a bit of distance right? From, and because joy isn't me and there are things that are happening to joy and things that she's thinking about and doing that lynn never did do or think or behave that way so i wanted to yeah create that distance between you know i always think we have some sort of author and then we have narrator and then we have character and mm. they can all be the one or they can be separated mm. in you know different combinations so i really wanted to separate author from character with young joy but when i started writing adult joy for some reason i wanted that in present tense first person i wanted that immediacy and that to be seeing inside her brain a bit more and and I also wanted from a writing perspective I wanted to be able to switch it you know move from one to the other from this chapter to this chapter and be consistent with the appropriate voice Mm. at that Mm. time so hence also then we get Shepherd in because he's in the same time frame as adult joy first person present tense I wanted to create him in third person or sort of that omniscient narrator. Yeah. So that I when I switched chapters or you know, switched heads and so on, I knew where I was and I, I could hopefully have slightly different voice or different enough voices, distinctive and and know know where I was and what I needed to do in that chapter. Yeah, so I think as I said, I started because I started writing Joy, Child Joy in first person, that was a deliberate decision to change mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. see where that took me. And I remember actually Tony Birch saying that he had changed a whole novel from I think first person to third person or present tense to past tense or something like that. Yeah. And he had done it with a whole novel and then I, I think he, I've, I've got this right and then he he did it and then he thought, no, nah, I think it needs to be. <laughs> <laughs> so you have to go down those paths and yeah. then. And then be prepared to backtrack if need be.
1: I agree. Well, I think it's for anyone listening, if this is something that you think about with your own writing, which point of view to use, which tense, which all that stuff, this is a great book to really have a look at it because Lynn has got all those different voices and, and tenses in there. And I think it's really interesting to see the way that they can work together, but also also be separate. Yeah, oh,
0: that's good. Thanks. Mm. That's
1: yeah, and yeah. I loved great it. Book. <laughs> I have read the book, yes. Uh, and just before we get on to just a few other things about the book, the setting of the book. I, we can't leave without talking about the setting. You said you grew up on, you know, a property very similar to the one in the book that was in in rural Victoria. Yes,
0: in West Gippsland. And it wasn't quite as remote as the house and the farm in The Silent Listener. We were probably only about five miles from the nearest town. But I went to a little primary school and then a slightly bigger high school. And yeah, you, you wouldn't have heard the neighbours scream, which was sort of fairly important for me. Mm, mm. And and it was a dairy farm for a long time. And my mum was a florist and did grow okay. flowers. And so there was always that thing that we did have a beautiful, beautiful garden. Or gardens uh, plural, there were gardens here, there and everywhere and mum was forever digging up new beds and, you know, alongside of this shed or Mm. take down this fence, move it, create another flower bed and plant 70 proteas and uh, it was really quite amazing. She was not only a very talented florist and businesswoman but also unbelievable green thumb. So we had all these beautiful flowers around our house all of the time which kind of, you know, I always thought belied what was going on inside. Four walls.
1: Yeah. Um, and the mud,
0: uh, there was mud. Oh, there was mud. Oh, it's <laughs> one of the wettest parts of Australia, certainly Victoria. It was just muddy all the time. And um, not so many years ago, when we were going out for Mother's Day one day with my mum and one of my brothers and his wife, we're driving along. And my sister in law said, Oh, look at these beautiful green rolling hills and it was a wet day of course it was wet it was May it was wet and the three of us my brother my mum and I none of us said anything for I don't know like three or four seconds or something and then my brother said huh, I look out there and all I see is mud and and that's Man. how it was and and I, I find it really interesting that people see so much beauty in that landscape intellectually I understand it, it is it's green rolling hills and there's Beautiful, but for me it's you know the connotations are so ingrained, I just can't can't go down there and think, yeah, gee, this is beautiful countryside. And when I finished uni when I was 21, I was sent in those days to Horsham High School as an as a teacher. And I got to Horsham. I'd never been there or anywhere near there. And it was the exact opposite. It was flat and it was red and it was hot and it was dry. And I absolutely loved it. (laughs) I just thought, oh, this is what a beautiful landscape is. (laughs) But, of course, I'm sure there are people who grew up there who think, well, I'm sure there are people who grew up there who think it's beautiful, but I'm sure there are some who also, you know, are kind of plagued by similar connotations that, know the rest of us just don't have
1: because it's your experience of that landscape isn't it mm. and you were mm. so entrenched in that and the the day-to-day chores and, and oh. your life there which of course taints the way that you see see what's around you.
0: Absolutely it, it, you know it's like it's a bit like when you smell something that brings back the past to so vividly. That's how I feel about the landscape.
1: Yeah. 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 <laughs> Um, well, I could talk about this book non-stop, as you probably guessed, because I absolutely loved it. But it has been a year since it came out. It's been really interesting to watch Lynn from the outside when the book came out. And I, I felt like it had a bit of a slow burn for a while. Sorry again about the pun, because <laughs> you know what I'm talking about. But then it's almost like it did ignite and just seemed to take off at some point. You know, it was everywhere on social media and just... How has the experience been for you over the last twelve months?
0: Yeah, it's, it's been amazing and totally unexpected. In terms of, I, I had no idea that what I would have to do, and and the whole thing with social media, like I was on LinkedIn, and Facebook, and you know that sort of stuff. But this is a whole new ball game. So I've I've learned a lot, but I feel like I am living the dream that. You know, I'm not not wealthy, from it, of course, but, you know, I've been to writers' festivals. I had a fantastic launch. I was very lucky with all the timing around COVID and mm-hmm. regulation and so on. An absolutely amazing launch with over 100 people. Yes, several writers' festivals I've managed to get to, including, believe it or not, one in Western Australia at Margaret River. Wow. And- Story wow. Fest and Bad at Sydney and Clunes and I've been on many podcasts and a few radio shows and reviews here and there and some library talks and all of which I have to say also I absolutely love, like I just love it. So doing something like this with you, today I've just been oh yes you know I woke up this morning I thought yes I'm on the pan <laughs> this
1: afternoon this is fantastic. oh that's good because I was a little worried I thought she's probably so sick of this after a year yes, of it oh
0: no, no I'm not I'm not I, I could do this all day every day <laughs> which I don't know somebody will say that it's been fantastic and Danuka McKenzie, I'll do a big shout out to her whose debut novel The Torrent comes out today as well yes. which been, uh, and I met at um, Bad Sydney in December. And I told her that today is also the anniversary of um, the Silent Listener coming out. So we have this sort of thing of oh, you know, we had you know twin um, debut dates, birthday dates for our novel. So, and I told her, hang on, you're in for you know an amazing ride. And yeah, I've been really lucky because lots of people have picked it up and read it and recommended it and. And I have to also say Australia's writing community is just Mm. amazing, Mm. so supportive in so many ways. I've made so many, you know, met people and felt, you know, half an hour later that we're friends and we'll be friends for life.
1: Yeah.
0: And I've really been blown away by the generosity of people reading it, reviewing it, recommending it, being on panels with me, interviewing me, just incredible generosity and a shared. I guess love for what it what it is that we're doing and for books and the ideas mm-hmm. that books can provide and the escapism and the joy or the and even sometimes the bleakness or the poignancy, all of those range of emotions that we can experience when we read. But yeah, Australia's writing community I just think is amazing and I'm so pleased, proud, honoured, you know, all of those things that people have you know, so willingly accepted me into that cohort of amazing people. Yeah, <laughs> like yeah. I've, always, I've always, always, always had writers up on a pedestal. Never, thanks, Dad, never really believed that I would be one. But, yeah, so to be here now is just a, a total thrill. Good for you.
1: It's brilliant. It is out in a B format now, Lynn, I believe. Yes, it is
0: out in a B format as of today. So I didn't really understand. Well, yeah, whether that was a good thing or a bad thing. But anyway, Bev at Penguin and other people at Penguin assure me it's a really good thing to have been brought out in a B format. So it's a lot lighter and smaller and cheaper. A slightly revamped. Option. Yeah, so that that's really exciting and it's been optioned for a screen adaptation. And yeah, so that actually happened quite some time ago, but we kept. Uh, and the person who bought it, the company that bought it, we kept these in Sydney and we kept wanting to make an announcement in Sydney. But, of course, I just haven't been able to get to Sydney. Yeah. And it's too difficult to plan where are we going to have it, how many people will we invite, etc. But Deanne Weir, who's the main person who's bought it, who's an amazing philanthropist and wonderful human being, who is chair of Sydney Film Festival and chair of several other boards and... Amazing Things has also gone into partnership with Olivia Humphrey, who was the founder of a streaming platform called Canopies, spelled with a K, which really took off. And Olivia and um, Deanne have joined forces to create a group called Storied, S-T-O-R-Y-D. One of the first feature films they're doing is Run Rabbit Run, which was written by Hannah Kent. Yes, yep. And they've been involved in lots of others, like the Prani Fish movie that came out a little while yeah, ago, yeah. and several other really good movies like I Am Woman and so on. Anyway, they've um, optioned The Silent Listener and were sort of in the process of putting together a treatment for it. They're very keen, very, very keen for it to go ahead. So that's
1: amazing. That's so exciting. Congratulations. <gasps> yes. And you are obviously working on another book, Lynn? Yes,
0: well. I am. I signed a two book deal right penguin. thank you penguin amazing okay. and yes yeah, so i'm into the second novel which is also based on real events but not my own those of a friend of mine and also those of many 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 other women during what was called the baby scoop era in america where unmarried women were often coerced to give up their children simply because they were unmarried. So I've done a whole lot of research about it. And it's another psychological thriller. So at its core, I guess a very important social issue about how women of a certain, well, not of a certain kind, but who, who were pregnant, basically, mm-hmm. very, yeah, very important social issue, but again, wrapped up as a psychological thriller with issues of, you know, I don't know truth, identity. Yeah etc there's a couple of murders in there again multiple points of view she says well.
1: with a big smile on her face yeah no i think
0: I, sometimes i think i've bitten off more than i can chew but i have learned if nothing else we just keep going and going and going and going and going
1: yeah yep yeah. and had you started that prior to signing the contract with penguin
0: no i hadn't i had a couple of other ideas but penguin said no go with this one
1: well congratulations lynn it's been so fantastic to chat to you and I really, you know, as I said, I loved the book. I'm just, I can see why it's doing so well and why, why it's being optioned for film and all those things. So um, well done and good luck with the new one.
0: Oh, thank you, Pam. As I said, I honestly, I was just so woke up this morning. I thought, yes, got Pam today. This has been fantastic. And I think everything that you do and the podcast does for writers, especially women and promoting not just the book but the craft of writing is so important and mm-hmm. it's so good for us to hear, yeah, what other writers are doing and thinking and that, you know, the self-doubt and the need to keep going and the tips that you've given writers and all of that sort of thing, so valuable and, and wonderful. I think you do a great job too. So oh, thank
1: thanks, you. Lynn. That's so yeah. good to know. Thank you. Where can people find you online before we let you go?
0: Instagram, Twitter. LinkedIn, Facebook, and I've got a website which is linyowit.com. Um yeah, what, sorry and,
1: I pronounced your name incorrectly.
0: Oh, that's fine, it doesn't bother me at all. And and I'm just going to do a little plug. I've been long listed for this little prize in the UK where the book has come out. And and now to win, if if that's at all possible, it's it depend it, it's totally up to how many votes the book gets. Ah. If you go to my website, this is probably the quickest way, easiest way of doing it, on the landing page, on the home page, there's a little button that says vote now or vote here or something like that. And if you click on it it takes you to the website and you just enter your name and your email address and press submit. And so I'd really love it if people would do that because it's the only Australian book that's been long. Oh, wow, that's amazing. Yeah, so I think I'm, I'm... I think it's sort of for books that might have in the UK kind of gone under the radar a little bit, but kind of trying to help promote. I think that's it. And uh, so thanks to Joffie Books, my publishers in UK. And, yeah, if, if people are happy to vote for it, that would make my day also.
1: <laughs> oh, definitely. Let's all get out there and get Lynn onto that uh, short list at least and then hopefully yeah. all the way. So um, we can do that and I'll put that in the show notes as well.
0: Oh, lovely. Thank you, Pam. Yeah fantastic
1: all the best lynn i hope our paths cross in person at some stage soon.
0: absolutely thank you so much pam and again as i said for everything that you do
1: it's absolutely brilliant thank you thanks lynn how good was that congratulations to lynn too on having that b format out the day that we recorded the episode. So that was fantastic and so wonderful to hear about the possibilities with uh, the book being optioned, you know, for film. It's just amazing. It's done so well just in the last 12 months. Word of mouth has really kicked in with this book. I'm still smiling from ear to ear after listening back to this conversation while I was editing it. And I personally got so much you know, out of the, the information that Lynn shared about the writing of her book and how she approached fact and then turning it into fiction and dealing with some of the trauma and, and the emotions and things that came up as she did that. And by the way, I did have that chat later on to Lynn after we finished recording about the new edition that was mentioned by her publisher and, and that Lynn incorporated into the book, the one that only took her a mere 400 hours to pull off if you want to know more about that, you'll have to contact me privately yourself. That's all for this week. I hope that you found this interview a really great way to kick off 2022. I know I did. You'll find Lynn's contact details in the show notes and on the website, along with the video and the chat of the transcript. Thanks for listening to Rights for Women. I hope you've enjoyed my chat with this week's guest. If you did, I'd love it if you could add a quick rating or review wherever you get your podcasts so others can more easily find the episodes. Don't forget to check out the backlist on the Rights for Women website. So much great writing advice in the library there. And you can also find the transcript of today's chat on the website too. You can find details on the website on how to support the podcast through Patreon and get exclusive access to the extended audio and video of the monthly craft episode. And you can connect with me through the website at rightsforwomen.com, on Instagram and Twitter at W4W Podcast, the Facebook page, Rights for Women, or find me and my writing at pamelacook.com.au. Have a great week, and remember, every word you write, you're one word closer to typing the end.